We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Support for this podcast comes from U.S. Bank. When it's time for a new credit card, the best ones do way more than just buy stuff. And that's why U.S. Bank offers credit cards that make every day more rewarding. Earn cash back. Score points when you shop, dine out, travel, or binge watch. Or get a low intro APR. U.S. Bank credit cards were designed to fit your lifestyle. So make every day more rewarding. And check out usbank.com slash credit card. U.S. Bank credit cards are issued by U.S. Bank National Association N.D. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. Welcome to a Wednesday, July 19th edition of the Rotowire NBA podcast. Nick Whalen here with DJ Trainer. We are pleased to be joined by a guest on today's pod. He is Brett Dawson, Oklahoma City Thunder beat writer for the Oklahoman. Brett's been in the business of basketball for more than two decades. He's covered a couple of NBA teams, as well as spending several years as a college sports reporter. We had a great time chatting with Brett, covered a wide range of topics. May or may not have found out that Willie Cauley-Stein is a doomsday prepper. Regardless, it was a really fun interview. I think you'll feel the same way. So with that, let's get to Brett. Okay, we are here with Brett Dawson of The Oklahoman. Brett, really appreciate you taking the time out of your afternoon to talk with us. How are things going in Oklahoma City? They are uh, great and hot is how things are going here, basically. It's really, really hot. (laughs) All right, first things first. So you're a University of Kentucky graduate. DJ and I both went to the University of Wisconsin. So I think in some ways we might owe each other apologies for what happened on the basketball court in 2014 and 2015. 
Yeah, you know, I was actually covering those games, so I was uh, I was really an impartial observer. Despite having gone to Kentucky, I did study journalism, so I'm not like a big rah rah Kentucky fan because I covered that that program for so long. But they were actually for me, they were great. I loved covering those two games because I love those Wisconsin guys. Like unlike the Kentucky guys who had like one personality on the two teams combined, <laughs> which was Willie Cauley Stein. Right. Those, those Wisconsin guys were just like swimming in personality. Yeah, that that's the thing. It felt like. You know, everybody was kind of rooting against Kentucky by the end of that tournament in 2015, especially, you know, wanting to see the undefeated team fall. And Wisconsin had so many characters uh, on that team. But uh, when were you at Kentucky as a student? Uh, I graduated in 98. Okay. So a million years ago. Okay. Okay. And so how invested are you then in, in Kentucky basketball year to year now? I mean, I know you mentioned covering the team. Um, does, does that kind of beat the fan out of you at some point? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I, I covered them a couple of different places. Um, and so like, even as I've gotten further removed from it, I'm only two years away from having covered them. I was at the Courier Journal for a long time and then at Rivals for a couple of years. Uh, and you just kind of, some of that stuff just sort of fades as you cover a team and you never really get it back. Like I can go now and like when I was in New Orleans last year, I went to like one sort of uh, alumni gathering to watch a game and I, you know, I just watch games in a different way than other people who went there. I can't, it's hard for me to root, you know, I'm kind of watching those games and being like, oh, I don't know about this guy as a prospect. Like, look at the way he defends the pick and roll and like that kind of stuff. I'm more interested in that. So I still watch a lot of Kentucky because, uh, if I'm going to watch college basketball, I like kind of a one-stop shop. I like to watch Kentucky or Duke or teams that have like multiple, uh, future draft picks, but that's really what I watch for now. So were you a Kentucky guy from birth or where did you grow up? Who were your yeah, rooting I, interests before going to college? Yeah, I rooted more or less for Kentucky. I mean, like I'm, I'm from Louisville, the Louisville area. Uh, my parents were Western Kentucky grads. Everybody in my family except me went to Western Kentucky. Uh, so there was some sort of division there, but most of my family, they, they rooted for Kentucky and Western. So, you know, for me, that was kind of the way I grew up um, was sort of rooting for Kentucky. And I thought like I go to Kentucky and, and you know, the first year I was there, I wasn't 100 percent sure what I was going to do. And so I was there, you know, getting tickets and going like a student and, and cheering and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, I got into journalism uh, toward the end of that first year and I started to, I got a chance to cover the team. Uh, in my second year there. And it just sort of changed everything for me. It was, uh, I, I viewed it very differently. Um, you know, I, I, people don't believe that stuff can go away, but it really did for me. It's just, there's not that rooting interest anymore. Um, and it just sort of gradually happened over time. I, I remember like when I was in school, you know, people would say like, Oh, if you could uncover this recruiting scandal, would you? And I was like, yeah, it would, it would like make my career. Of course I would, of course I would report that stuff. And my friends were blown <laughs> away by this idea. Like, wow, you would really do that. But yeah, of course. So yeah, that that stuff, uh, it it very much changed uh, in pretty short order, and it's just kind of stayed that way over time. I mean, I, it's funny because people think I love Kentucky because I went there, and I do tend to talk about those guys a lot because they have so many NBA guys, and I covered a lot of guys uh, who are in the league now. You know, when I was at the Courier and at Rivals, I covered the whole first, you know, seven years of Calipari or whatever it was, and so like. You know, almost every team, it seems like now has a guy covered. So I know a lot of those guys a little bit and I have an interest there, but it's not a rooting interest. I own a Kentucky shirt, you know, so I got that going for me. So you had the unique honor of witnessing or being a student during the entire Antoine Walker era. Uh, I did. He was there. Yeah, we were uh, we were uh, we were in school together. I guess that's accurate to say. I, I just imagine him just kind of ruling the campus uh, for was he there only two years? 
He was at a time when like it was sort of shocking when he left, which is hilarious to think right. about now. Like like Antoine Walker left after two years. Man, everybody thought he would stay three, um, which is so weird to think about now because you know, now even even with the production in his first year, he would have gone after one um, just based on the talent. It's obviously everything's changed so much. But yeah, yeah, he was um, you know, he was a he's a guy who I, I don't remember what he was like as a college guy. You know, like I remember him more as a pro. I don't remember interacting with him that much. I have some vivid memories of some of those guys. Um, some of the guys who played there at that time. And, and, um, you know, even some of the guys he was teammates with, like Derek Anderson, who was a teammate of his and was like the most, just most, when you're a young guy starting out in, in journalism, like the most fun guy you could cover Derek Anderson, but Antoine Walker was kind of, they had done a pretty good job of, like the the suppression of his personality, which is a good thing they do at Kentucky. Like they they were able to do that with him. <laughs> like what you saw coming later. Like I never would have seen Antoine being the guy who had like, you know, I, maybe my favorite NBA quote of all time. The you know why don't you why do you shoot so many threes? And Antoine said because there are no fours. Like that's <laughs> that that's like he that, that is not the guy who uh, like we knew at Kentucky when I was a student. But like Derek Anderson, for example, who played a while in the NBA and was like a good player before he you know injuries mm-hmm. sort of wrecked his career. But he was a guy with like a ton of personality, and they had a few guys like that. But but Antoine wasn't one of those guys who you would have predicted would go on to be this like amazing character. Yeah, I was looking back at some of those mid to late 90s Kentucky rosters as I was prepping for this. And it's basically a who's who of like role players who I remember from NBA Live 2003. Yeah. Derek Anderson, yeah. Nazi Muhammad, Ron Mercer, Scott Padgett, Jamal McGlore, who I believe inexplicably made an all star team at one point, he if I'm did. not mistaken. That is, that is uh, that's like the most like hashtag the East thing you could possibly have. That is the Eastern Conference in a nutshell. Jamal McGlure was once an all-star. I think he made the all-star team and then the Bucks like threw a bunch of money at him that following year. And it was like, even from an outsider perspective, like it was very obvious that that wasn't going to work out. Um, he had a, he had a feud uh, when I was covering when I was in college, he had a feud with a local reporter, Jerry Tipton from the Lexington Herald leader. He'd like, he wouldn't answer his questions for like a year. So you mentioned that you would have reported on recruiting violations. I mean, were you looking for them? Were there signs? Oh, sure. I mean, like when I was in college, not I mean, you know, I didn't know what I was doing, so I wouldn't have been trying to really dig that stuff up in college. But, yeah, absolutely. When I was working at the Courier Journal, um, you know, there were stories, absolutely stories that I chased. Um, uh, you know, I couldn't report any of them. And so I unfortunately can't really talk about them now either because I, I just don't have the documented proof to talk about those things. If I could have, I would have written them. But I mean, there was one uh, during the Calipari era. There was a story that I, I spent a whole year trying to get uh, about what, what I believe to be some benefits. And it wasn't like a hugely significant thing. It wasn't like a scandalous, you know, um, I'm not going to I'm not going to allude to any other programs, but it wasn't academic or anything like that. It was just, you know, it was just like a thing that I I believed there was a benefit that a player was getting um, from like an agent. And I I could not ever really tie that down. And so uh, those are the kind of frustrating stories in this job sometimes that you spend a a really long time. I mean, like literally knocking on people's doors, uh, trying to find out if like a house that somebody was renting had been you know, rented to somebody previously and what the other person was paying in rent and all that kind of stuff and trying to figure out those details. So, um, yeah, like th- there were little things like that and I'm sure, and those things like th- these are not things that I think necessarily like John Calipari was directing, uh, cause there are some agent situations in those cases, but yeah, like you, you spend a lot of time looking into stuff like that. And, and that's the one thing I think people, you know, may not realize there, there's so much investigation done of stories that don't actually ultimately lead anywhere that either they don't exist or you can't get them. 
Um, so yeah, like I, I think people who cover college basketball, if, if you don't spend some, some significant amount of time looking into things like that, you know, either you're fortunately covering a, a program where there's nothing happening at all, or more likely you just, you're not hearing the right things or you're not doing the job exactly the right way. So I want to get one question in here before Waylon grills you about you covering the tw- 2004, 04, 05 Illinois uh, yeah. Fighting Illini team. So this past season was your first covering the Thunder, right? And then a couple yep. of years ago, you covered the Pelicans. Um, have you always been in the basketball business since you graduate, graduated college? And is that your number yep. one ideal sport to cover? Yeah, always. Um, basketball was always... I, I really never wanted to cover sports. I wanted to cover basketball. So like football... When I covered Illinois, I didn't have to cover football, just on the side, which I like. I like a little taste of football here and there. But um, I was the basketball beat writer there. And when I went to Louisville to the Courier-Journal, and I lived in Lexington, but I was, I was working for the Louisville newspaper, that's a full-time football and basketball job. At the time, the Courier-Journal has split that since then. But I was covering Kentucky football and basketball. And football, to me, was just a necessary evil. It was what I had to do uh, in the fall to cover Kentucky basketball. And there, there are people there, like diehard Kentucky football fans, who still hold that against me because I think it was sort of apparent in my coverage that I just wasn't really a football guy. You know, it's just not really my thing. And and Kentucky actually got kind of good when I was there uh, in football. They had, you know, the best run they've had in a really long time. They went to five straight bowl games, um, which for them is is pretty remarkable for Kentucky. And I, it just wasn't, you know, I was always kind of counting the days until I could cover basketball. So that was always the thing. And then for me, you know, like the NBA was always my passion. I really wanted to cover the NBA. And the trick with that is just opportunity. Um, you know, so often jobs, I had good college basketball jobs. That was the thing. I was in a really good situation where I, I was very fortunate to have gotten very good jobs at very good places. Um, and then when those NBA jobs opened, you know, it's very competitive. It's hard to get those. And a lot of times you're competing against people who have the amount of NBA experience that you have college experience. And so if you're somebody who's looking to hire an NBA writer, it's hard to, you know, to take a, a flyer on somebody who's covered colleges when there's all these guys who are you know, or, or, or women who are just as good as you and also have covered the NBA. So, um, it was a, it took a while to break into that. It, it, it took some patience and a, lo- a little luck and like a huge giant risk, uh, moving to new Orleans to cover that team on a freelance basis. So DJ kind of let the cat out of the bag uh, a sorry, couple minutes sorry. ago. Sorry. <laughs> uh, but, but in researching for this, I was beyond thrilled to learn that you wrote a book about maybe my favorite college basketball team ever, the Oh four Oh five, Illinois fighting Illini. Of course, that's D. Brown, Darren Williams, Luther Head, James Augustine, etc. I'm 24 years old. DJ's about the same age. And I can say with just about 100% confidence that almost every college basketball fan my age loved that Illinois team and specifically loved D. Brown. And I grew up in Green Bay, so no, one, no one's an Illinois fan in that area. Uh, but that, that team seemed to kind of transcend uh, you know, any kind of state biases. What was it like covering such a fun and, and you know, seemingly from the outside, at least charismatic team? Yeah, that, that team was a blast to cover. Um, that was, you know, I was young. I was really kind of just getting started in this and to kind of get thrown into such a good team uh, was it was a little overwhelming sometimes because I just hadn't really had the experience of doing that yet quite to that extent. Um, where I was, you know, traveling to every game and all that stuff and being uh, as embedded as I was. And that was also like an, an incredible access situation there at Illinois where I mean, nobody does this anymore. Even Illinois doesn't do this anymore. But at the time I could go, I, every practice was open to me. I could go to every single practice. I could interview players before practice and after 
Um, and so like I could sit there, I could interview D Brown for five minutes, 10 minutes before practice, sit there, watch practice while I transcribe my interview and then realize, Oh, you know, like I should have asked D this and I could just get him again and ask him that, uh, which was insane. It was just like, nobody was doing that. And, and certainly nobody's doing it now. So like doing that stuff, it was, they were really fun. They were re- a really engaging group. They had a great personality. Um, those three guys, uh, D Brown, Darren Williams and Luther head in particular had this sort of chemistry between them and these inside jokes and stuff that just really funny stuff. And, and just being around those guys in Augustine, they had a lot of personality. Uh, even Roger Powell was kind of a fun guy to cover cause he had been through kind of some interesting stuff in his life. He'd become like a, 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 a licensed minister in the summer before that, that great season. So like, yeah, they were, that was wild. That was really like a formative experience for me. And then like, you know, uh, I remember when the NCAA tournament started that year, my boss, uh, calls me over to his desk, uh, Jim Rosso. And he says, uh, uh, Hey, if they make the final four, you're writing a book. We just signed a deal. So just be prepared (laughs) to write a book and you got to do it. It's got to be done like six weeks after the tournament ends. So have fun. So that team started the year 29 and 0. They lose the yeah. the Big 10 regular season finale at Ohio State uh by one point. Matt then Sylvester. They, Matt Sylvester with the three-pointer to right. beat him. Uh, vivid re- memories of that game. Yep, exactly. <laughs> and they run through the Big 10 tournament. They beat uh a, an outstanding Wisconsin team led by junior Orlando Tucker and a senior year Mike Wilkinson. Um, I want to say that that game was just such a classic, classic Wisconsin game. That's one of the first that I really remember vividly. It was, it was, you know, mid forties or low fifties. Uh, but Ohio state wins that, or excuse me, Illinois wins that obviously they're a one seed. They blow through the tournament. They, they get to the elite eight and play maybe my second favorite team of all time, a game I'm sure you were at, uh, against Salim Stoudemire's Arizona Wildcats in the elite eight. That's an overtime win. Uh, and then they get to the final four, they get to the title game, end up losing to an outstanding North Carolina team. I think there were six future NBA players uh, on that team, one of which is now in OKC. That's Raymond Exactly. Yep, uh, have you had a weird... chance to talk to him about that at all, or are you going to? I have not. I will. All we've really had with Raymond is like a big press conference. And, and weirdly, um, at that press conference, it was him and Patrick Patterson. And I covered Patterson for three years, so he and I... I really that if I was going to pick one of those guys to connect with, it was Patrick because I've known him for a long time. I knew his parents. You know, I, I started at the Courier Journal. I think the year Patrick was a senior in high school, so like during his recruitment, which was a massive, wild recruitment between Kentucky and Florida, and mm-hmm. and he was very close, so I could get down there and write stories, which I did a couple of times. So I've known Patrick a long time. So I spent a little more time with him after the press conference. But I will talk to Raymond about the fact that I covered that so that he can understand how old I am. So Patrick Patrick Patterson played with OJ Mayo for at least one or two years at the end of his high school career, right? One year. OJ is from there, like Huntington, right. West Virginia is where Patrick's from. And then OJ left because uh, he could go cu- – I don't remember all the details of this, but I just talked to Patrick's high school coach like a week ago, and he was telling me about this, that like OJ could play varsity in Kentucky yeah. uh, in like seventh grade, and they don't let you do that in West Virginia. So he moved to Kentucky so that he could do that. Mm-hmm. And then he ultimately – he went to somewhere, I think, in Ohio as well, and then came back. So his senior year, uh, he came back. So Patrick – had played on two state championship teams, and then OJ came back, and they won again the third one mm-hmm. with OJ. I, th- I think OJ, I read somewhere, played in like six different state tournaments because he was, like you said, he was playing varsity as a seventh grader. And anyone who hasn't seen, uh, there's a video on YouTube. I think it's just titled OJ Mayo's, Mayo's Final High School Game. And it's just like, it's a, a video from a cell phone in the crowd of like the last 30 seconds of a state championship game. I think it's in West Virginia. It's a pretty small gym. And O.J. Mayo's team and Patrick Patterson's team, I guess, are up by like 50 points. O.J. is inexplicably still in the game. 
steals the ball from the other team as they're basically trying to run out the clock, throws it off the backboard, dunks it, and then whips the ball into the crowd and gets kicked out. So I, I don't know if any player at any level has ever had a cooler send-off uh, than O.J. Mayo. But uh, if you could do us a favor and, and ask Patrick Patterson if he knows what O.J. Mayo is up to or where he has been over the last year and a half, that would be excellent. Yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, we'll talk to Patrick again here at some point. Yeah, I'll make sure to I'll run it by him. So let's get to some more Thunder-related questions. Um, We'll start with someone who's been in OKC literally as long as the Thunder have been there. Russell Westbrook, is he going to sign this long-term extension? What is your read on that whole situation? I think so. I mean, you know, the one thing I've learned, and it's been less than a year that I've been here, but I don't really try to predict Russell Westbrook's moods or or movements or whatever, because he is a, a, you know, he's a guy who's hard to get to know and there are walls up around him. And I think anybody who kind of pretends they know what Russell is thinking is is probably a little off base or is in that inner circle. And those people don't really talk. So um, I, I think ultimately he's going to sign it. I would say that there has been optimism throughout this offseason from the organization. I think there's a strong sense that he's going to sign it. Now, whether he ends up signing the full five, you know, biggest contract in the history of the NBA, whether he tries to uh, go with like a smaller deal that like a little shorter deal gives himself some opt out options along the way uh, that I don't know. But I I think ultimately he's going to sign an extension this summer. Um, And and really, that's just based on the optimism that that I think people around the the organization have. That's not coming directly from him. So, again, you got to take it with a grain of salt a little bit. But I I think ultimately that's what he's going to do. So we also Westbrook's emotional speech at the NBA Awards. How real do you think that love Westbrook has for his teammates actually is? And if it's real, do you think that's universally reciprocated despite his ball dominant style he plays? I mean, five, 10 years down the road, maybe a lot of those teammates would come out and say, not an ideal teammate, but you know, you have to stand up for the guys who are on your team at the time they're on your team. Yeah, I mean, nobody likes everybody. So, like, I'm sure he's not universally liked by every teammate. But I will say that among the guys who are here, um, you know, they, they don't – it's not like if you ask, is he a great teammate, and they tell you, yes, he's a great teammate. It's they bring it up all the time. They talk all the time about what a good teammate he is, about how much he has your back, about what kind of support he gives you. You know, I think the things that we, that I didn't know from a distance, you know, it was stuff like – like, we you can watch a game last year – and you can see moments where it looks like he he literally like he's terrifying DeMontis Sabonis. Like Sabonis is like frightened of him, frightened of him yelling at him or whatever. But then away from it, you know, people will talk about how he would go to the back of the plane with Domas and sit there and talk to him and watch film with him uh, and break things down with him. There are all kinds of little things like this that I don't think, you know, that from the outside, I don't think we know about him. Uh, Ennis Canner talked about the fact, you know, when 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 Ennis broke his forearm punching the chair, which was incredibly stupid. You know, he said Westbrook was one of the first guys who just said, look, like stuff happens. It set a tone for the team to kind of get over it and forgive him uh, and not kind of harp on it, even though it was a real blow to the team. So I I think there are these leadership things that he does that, you know, I think if you fixate on the way he plays and the way he dominates the ball, which, by the way, he did this year a lot more than he had done in the past. He used to play with Kevin Durant. Obviously, uh, you know, what we saw this year is he was deferring to Durant quite a bit. He could have been doing this a lot more. Uh, he could have been taken over late in games when he didn't. He really deferred to Durant in those situations and then came out this past year and was like unbelievably good, like like remarkably uh, so good in those clutch situations that you think it'll never be replicated. He had such one of the great clutch seasons of all time. 
Um, so, you know, some of that stuff is easy to look at and say, like on the court, you do see some some flaws in the way he plays in terms of sharing the ball with other people. Um, but I think in terms of being a generous teammate, most of those guys feel like he is. I mean, he, t- he took 62 shots in the final two games of that Houston series uh, back in April. Did, did you get the feeling that, you know, the, the Thunder and his teammates just knew that that was their best chance? You know, I mean, especially late in that game, you know, in the fourth quarter of game five, he was just throwing up shots that even for him, you know, were, were, were bad shots and, and shots that granted he can make maybe more so than any player in the NBA. But it just kind of seemed like everybody on the floor knew, all right, all we got to do is get the ball to Russ. Even if he's taking a contested three, that's better than Robertson taking a wide open three. Uh, and it was just kind of rebound the ball, get it to Russ, let him get a shot up, see what happens. Is that something where it was, okay, Westbrook saying this is how it's going to be, or everyone else on the team realized we don't have a lot of shooters. We're one of the worst three-point shooting teams in the NBA. If we're going to have any chance to beat a team like Houston, it's going to have to be going 100% through Russ. Yeah, I think some a little little bit of both. I mean, that's the way Russ was going to play. Because I think, I mean, you know, Russ got mad last year about the, uh, the, the question that Barry Trammell, our columnist, asked Stephen Adams about the team kind of cratering when Russ got off the floor and it was kind of a famous press conference moment where Russ is saying, next question, next question, and basically accusing Barry of trying to pit the team against each other or whatever. But, like, that that's for... Uh, a team unity issue from a from a basketball intelligence standpoint. Russ knows they were terrible when he was off the floor, um, and he knew that he had to carry the load. So I think that he, that's him setting the tone that he felt like he was going to do that. The other side of it is I think they had a pretty offensively passive team around him. Victor Oladipo is a, a good player who was not going to assert himself a lot in those situations. He's a guy who who very naturally deferred to to Westbrook. Um, and so I think that that also had something to do with it. They just didn't have a lot of guys who felt like they were going to do that. This is going to be a different team, obviously, very different situation. Um, but I, I think on that team, yeah, I think that team was built to do it that way. And the, the thing about when I say that team was built, that team was built to have Kevin Durant on it and it didn't. And so you, you're just kind of making do. They were in a position where they couldn't change a whole lot. So, you know, they had what they had. And I think most of those guys, uh, really all of those guys are just the kind of guys who defer to the star player and it ended up they had a team with one instead of two and that dramatically changed what they were uh so take us through the evening of this past february 11th in oklahoma city the thunder have already faced the warriors twice in golden state but this third meeting was just a little bit different uh as a relatively unbiased reporter who wasn't in okc for katie's tenure there what was your reaction to how the crowd treated him well it was wild you know it was funny because leading up to it you know I was not around here for all for any of the Kevin Durant stuff. He left. Uh, so he left July 4th and I started here September 15th. So I, not only was I not there for any of it, but even the immediate aftermath, I didn't see it. Um, but I, I heard people analyzing it on television and they would say, well, I think they're going to cheer for him. And I was like, <laughs> no, dude. Yeah. like I, I spent I've spent enough time here to know this. Like I've gotten this feedback. I understand the way people feel. People were really hurt. People were angry and they were going to lash out. I, I don't think there was ever any doubt about that. There was a movement to be like, oh, let's try to, uh, you know, let, let, may, like, let's be silent. There were some people who argued that it was never going to happen. This was what was going to happen. He was going to get booed. He was going to get booed every time he touched the floor or touched the ball. I was surprised by the cupcake stuff. Like that was pretty organic and really just took off. Like that is not a thing that. You know, like nobody was online really organizing that. People just sort of showed up with cupcake shirts and chanted cupcake. And one guy brought his daughter dressed as a cupcake like that stuff. 
uh, sort of surprised me, but the reaction and the sort of venom behind it and the anger and the hurt that was in it and all that, that did not surprise me at all. I, I was talking to fans that night because that was one of my assignments. And I, I think one of the things people missed about that was like, you know, people kept saying like, uh, you know, like, like, why don't they appreciate what he did for them in the time that he was there? You know, they should applaud him because they appreciate it. They really did appreciate what he did. That's why it hurt so much that he left. And that's why they were angry. You, you can argue whether that's a rational response. But I mean, you know, what what fan responds rationally to anything? Um, but but I thought the booing was a sign of just how much they cared about the time that he was here and how much it, it hurt them that he ended it. Were you surprised at all at how Westbrook handled that night? You know, he was he was composed leading up to it. He had deflected just about every question possible since July 4th uh, when Durant signed. And, and it seemed like everything just kind of reached ahead. You know, I think it was just before halftime they had that that first kind of exchange and then it spilled over a little bit into the second half when Robertson got involved. Were you surprised at all that that it seemed like uh, the Thunder maybe let their emotions get the best of them for parts of that game? A little bit surprised just because it's not like like Westbrook's not a big like he'll talk some trash, but he's not a big confrontational guy. He, he by for the most part, he keeps to himself when he plays. He'll talk to his teammates. He rarely like, you know, he, he doesn't acknowledge guys before games very often. Like he'll pat. I remember at the, there was a game this year where he, he sort of gave James Harden a pat on the shoulder. And that's like like at the at like at the scores table pre jump ball. He gave James Harden a little pat on the shoulder as he walked by. And that is like somebody else like embracing somebody and giving them like this warm hug. You know, he doesn't really acknowledge that anybody else is there on the other team for the most part. That's that's his mindset. So for him to be so engaged with Duran and, the you know, the yelling, I'm coming at him and all that stuff, that was a little out of character for him. It's not totally surprising because I've never been in an atmosphere uh, more emotional than that. Probably probably one or two. I can think of one college game that came sort of close to that, which was the first time. Uh, Kentucky, uh, the first time Kentucky and Louisville played in Lexington when John Calipari was the coach and Rick Pitino was the coach. And those two guys have such a history and there's such hatred for Pitino and at, at Kentucky now, like that vibe was kind of similar. That one was maybe even more hateful than this one. This one was a little bit more in some ways it was playful. There was a lot of hate in it, obviously, but the cupcake stuff, kind of a fun, uh, thing. I, Durant obviously didn't think it was fun, but for the fans, I think it was fun. Um, but but like that that atmosphere was just so emotionally charged that I'm not surprised anybody would be a little out of character. Like Andre Robertson got into sort of a, you know, they went nose to nose literally, um, and that's not really uh, Andre's personality either. So I, I do think the emotion of the night kind of got people wrapped up. You don't have to spend too long on this, but obviously we're curious from your expert perspective when he comes back once again as a defending champion. Is it going to be a worse reaction, better reaction, and you can quantify that however you want to? Yeah, they'll still boo him. I think they'll probably boo every time he touches the ball, and I, I don't. That will go away eventually. I think. Um, I think there will be a little bit of a different perspective because I do think last year the focus was really like this hurt us, you hurt us, we hate you, um, and I, I think now, this year with the Paul George situation, I think it's like a. It's more of a, you know, we want to beat you situation. And I do think it'll be a little bit more about the Thunder trying to beat the Warriors than it will be about Kevin Durant coming back. And it still won't totally be about that. There's still going to be a Durant element to it. Um, but it, it fades in time. You know, Kobe and Shaq is like a thing that's lingered forever. But the games were never as big as they were the first time. And th that's going to be the same thing. I think, you know, the second time through, he didn't play. So we don't know how big a drop off there would have been in terms of of that. But like from the first time to the second time they played at Golden State, the games were very different just in terms of how much 
that mattered uh, in the game, the fact that he was playing the Thunder. It's always going to be a thing, but it's a little less of a thing, and it'll become a little bit less of a thing, I think, every year. So we've seen most notably LeBron, Durant, and now Gordon Hayward this past summer receive a fair amount of backlash for switching teams as free agents. LeBron, of course, did the decision. That panned out horribly. KD and Hayward both used the Players' Tribune. Neither of those went over all that smoothly. Is there a right way to make an announcement like this? Probably not. LeBron's second time was pretty good, I think. You know, the Sports Illustrated piece. Um, but he had such a that was you talk about a loaded situation. I mean, he's going back to Cleveland. Nobody begrudges him that like everybody. I'm sure there are people in Miami who are mad. But the overwhelming feeling about that is is pretty positive. I think um, we'll see if he leaves again, how he handles it that time. <laughs> um, when you look back at the decision, I, I really feel like if he had just said, I'm going to Miami instead of I'm taking my talents to South Beach, it would have been like 10 percent better. It would have been received like at least 10 percent mm-hmm. better. That became such a quote people could seize on and make fun of him with. Um, but I don't think there's a great way to do it, because the fact of the matter is when you spend any significant period of time in a place and it doesn't. Like people think like people here think that it's a bigger deal when it's a place like Oklahoma City where it's smaller and you mean more to people. It's not. I don't know that it necessarily does. A star player means a ton to an NBA franchise and he means a ton to the fans. Uh, And so, like, if you leave, people are going to be angry and they're going to be hurt. And I don't know that there's an easy there's there's a good way to do it. People fixate on like they say, well, if Durant had gone anywhere but Golden State it would be better. Well, it would be better, but people would still be mad. They'd still be upset that he left. They wouldn't maybe be as mad, but they'd still be disappointed. I heard people say about Gordon Hayward, you know what, if he had just, if he hadn't denied it when it initially broke that day so that he could get his Players' Tribune story out, it would have been better. Well, sure, maybe it would have been better, but people still would have been angry. People in Utah still would be mad. I, I don't think there's a way you can do it that doesn't upset everybody. You know, Hayward was close. I mean, look what he did. If it hadn't leaked, he did write a, he, he wrote it, uh, he barely mentions Boston in the piece that he writes for the Players Tribune. It's mostly about how great Utah is, and the whole Boston thing is like, oh, it's my college coach, and I want to use this connection to him, and I want to play with him again. So, like, you know, it, it would be hard from the outside to like blame him for that one. But Utah fans were upset, and that's going to be the case everywhere. The the bottom line is these are great players who are sort of defining players for organizations, and if they leave, you know, it sucks for you that they're gone. And so I think however you handle it, it's going to make people mad. Do you know if players get any sort of incentive for using the Players' Tribune to make an announcement like this? I don't know. That's a good question. I kind of wondered that. Yeah, I, it seems like you know that's kind of the way to go for you know whether you just want to write an essay, whether you want to make a big announcement like this, and like you know especially these guys who might be tied to other media networks. You know, you'd think they maybe want to use those. Like I, I don't know if the Players' Tribune adheres to like traditional journalism standards uh, as far as like paying paying people to use it. I'm assuming it doesn't. That would be interesting if they're just like they got a freelance budget. Okay, Kevin Durant, you wrote us a little goodbye piece. Here's fifty dollars. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> just a little <laughs> stringer payment. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's get into a little bit more uh, on the Thunder's off season. Uh, they brought in Andre Robertson. Brought him back, I should say, at what I thought was a pretty affordable price. Uh, three years, thirty million dollars. Um, especially compared to some of the other contracts that were being handed out this summer. Obviously, he's not going to give you much from beyond the arc. And then, like we said earlier. That was one of the areas in which the Thunder really struggled last season. Uh, But OKC also brought in Patrick Patterson as a free agent. And that's someone who can space the floor at the four. You now have a couple of floor spacers in Paul George and Patrick Patterson to put around Russ, plus Doug McDermott coming off the bench. Is that going to be enough to to pull the Thunder out of the basement in terms of three-point shooting? I think it will be. They're they're a 
pretty significantly better three-point shooting starting five just because they lose Oladipo, who had his best three-point shooting year, um, but they add two guys. I mean, really, you know, in the second part of the year, when they were a much better team uh, was when they were starting Taj Gibson, who made one three uh, the whole time he was here, made one three all last season, and it was a half court. He, he caught, he stole a long inbound in Portland and threw it one-handed, and it went in. Um, so, you know, they, they've gotten much better at that position. DeMontis Sabonis gave them some spacing, but Patterson is obviously a, a better, more consistent floor spacer than he is. Um, so I, I think they've gotten dramatically better there. The bench, I think, is actually going to be a much better three-point shooting unit as well just because they didn't they didn't do a whole lot there. But what I think will change for them is they're going to play Raymond Felton. He's not a good three-point shooter. That's not important. But Felton gets into the middle of the floor. He's still really good at getting into the paint. That's his strength. Um, he's a pretty good finisher there, but he also can kick out. And I think that's the thing where you're going to have those guys benefit. You're going to have Doug McDermott and Alex Abrinas. And I think Abrinas in particular is going to make a leap. Uh, I, I think he's you, you saw him sort of coming on in the second half of last year when he was healthy, he had a couple little, you know, uh, uh, dings and bruises here and there that, that kept him out. But he, he showed a pretty steady, uh, consistent improvement. He was a better than 40 percent three point shooter. He shot more than 40 percent uh, all but two of the months, if you just break it down by month. So he he's a good shooter and I think he's gotten stronger and I think he'll be a little bit more prepared to play more minutes. Um, and so I, I think they're a much better three-point shooting team. I, they're not maybe, you know, they're not going to be among the best. Um, but when you have Westbrook, you just want a little bit of space. You want a little bit of spread to put when you play some spread pick and roll. So they're going to have more of that. Um, and and I, I think it's a pretty significant upgrade. And it's the thing they really had to address. You heard it here first. Alex Abrina is taking a massive leap. <laughs> Brett Do- <laughs> says Brett Dawson. Well, he played like 18 minutes a game last right. year, so I think I think he, I I don't think for I think for him a pretty significant leap would just be to get into you know just be playing more consistent minutes and sure. I think he'll finish some games. I think there will be some moments where because of what George gives them defensively, they can sit Robertson in situations. Um, you know, like they'll be they're going to want to finish with Robertson for the most part. But if you need offense, you got options now. You have options you did not have. You know, last year when when uh, Robertson could not make a free throw against Houston and Houston's hacking him late and they're not taking him out of the game because they're afraid of what James Harden's going to do if he's not there to defend him. We don't have that problem anymore because you throw Paul George on him and now you've got a credible defender on James Harden, but you also don't have to have your offense totally suffer. So the Thunder, the Grizzlies, and the Pelicans are generally considered to have or be the bottom three in terms of market size. Brett, you've now covered two of those three teams. Besides the obvious, what's different about covering small market teams compared to some of your fellow reporters at bigger markets? Did I move down? Did I go from like? Did I go from like? Uh, you went from like twenty eight to twenty nine or something. You I'm, went I'm not sure. Up, I think. <laughs> I think New Orleans is actually last. I think it's New Orleans, it? Memphis, Oklahoma City. Oh, I'm climbing. Look yeah. out. All right. Look out, Milwaukee. Yeah, or whatever. Alex Sabrinas esque jump there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's huge, huge leap forward. Um, it's different. You know, I, I think that what you have to do in those markets is probably a little different. Like in New York, people, like the Knicks are terrible, and people go to the Knicks games. There's so many people there. You know that there's just so many people with such a, a, a range of interest that somebody's going to go want to go watch the NBA, even if the team isn't very good. Um, Chicago's kind of the same way. They can be bad, and and Bulls fans, by and large, still go. Um, in a market like this, that's a little different. I think you have to, you know, the Thunder has been very fortunate in the sense that they've really never been bad. Uh, the first year in Oklahoma City, 
Uh, they weren't good, but the second half of the year, they weren't bad. And then from then on, they've been pretty good. I mean, you know, the, other than that, they missed the playoffs one time and it was a season racked with injury. They would have made it clearly if Kevin Durant hadn't been hurt so much. So I, I think one, it's, it's harder to, to sort of bottom out and have this idea that you're going to do that. But I think you also in a market like that, from what I've studied here, from what I've just kind of observed here and in Memphis, certainly, and, and it's where I think New Orleans struggles. I think it really helps if you just can sort of find an identity that clicks with the city. Memphis is the, the the poster child for that, right? The grit and grind thing. It really connects with this feeling that Memphis has about itself, that it's it's sort of everybody kind of looks down on them. It's Memphis against the world. And I think the team sort of played to that. I think here there's a certain kind of um, – I don't know exactly the word I want to use, but like it is sort of, there's a, there's an underdog mentality to Oklahoma city. It feels like it's not a major city and it feels like it's always kind of fighting for respect. And the thunder is a team that's sort of given them that. I think they can kind of rally around that, this idea that, you know, like when you think about the best franchises in the NBA, a lot of people think about the thunder. It's, there's such a point of pride to that. Uh, and there's like a, there's a sort of like wholesomeness to them. I don't like. I don't know if you guys know this, but there's a prayer before the games here, like before I've the heard national about anthem. That, yeah. So like that's that's that that clicks that registers with some of the audience, and I think that actually weirdly started with the Hornets when they were here, and then they don't do it anymore in New Orleans, but it, <laughs> it continued on here. Um, but like I, I think that's the thing that New Orleans has sort of lacked from my perspective is like there isn't a thing that really connects in the city in the same way that that. To an extent, Oklahoma City and to a great extent, Memphis has found like it, it just doesn't. New Orleans is the most amazing, weirdest, quirkiest place. It's not a huge basketball city, but there's all kinds of people there. And like you could go to a Pelicans game. You have no idea. You could be anywhere. You know, there's there's no there's no brass band playing. There's no second line marching through the halftime show that they need to do more of that stuff, I think, and identify themselves with the city a little bit. But I, I think that's what you have to do in markets like this. So, yeah, definitely. I was going to ask you about that from the operations side of things. Now, full disclosure, everybody who's listened to this podcast once knows I'm from Oklahoma. I'm a proud Thunder fan. I've been to a lot of Thunder games. And what they do a good job of, um, I don't know if they've done I haven't been to a game this past season. But, you know, they flash as many cities and towns around Oklahoma as possible. So it really feels like a state thing. And obviously, Memphis has that grit and grind. But, you know, for these three small market teams, do you think that the operations are different? You know, marketing, in-game entertainment entertainment that say the Bulls, Knicks and Lakers would never even consider? Um, you know, maybe, I don't know the, the you, you, that stuff is so important everywhere. You know, that, that, uh, that, that in-game experience is really important everywhere. I think to just kind of keep people engaged. Um, but I do think that there's something to be said like Memphis. I mean, gosh, I've been to Memphis on one of those wrestling nights and nothing hits the Memphis <laughs> oh wheelhouse God. like those like those pro wrestling nights. They love it. They go crazy for it. And there is that sort of thing that Memphis identifies very much with that. And it just sort of speaks to their fan base. And that's the kind of promotion that wouldn't fly everywhere. Um, and I, it's one of those things that if, if New Orleans tried it, I think people would be like, what in the world is this? You know, so it's it's about finding your niche and finding what connects with your people. Um, and so, like, you know, Oklahoma City. It's weird because I, I skip a lot of halftime stuff, but I, I think they have a lot of the same. They have a lot of the same acts that everybody has, right? Everybody has Red Panda, and everybody yeah. has Quick Change, and and everybody has uh, the uh, woman that shoots a bow and arrow with her feet or whatever. Um, so it's a lot of the same stuff. But I do think there's a vibe. Little things like like I mean, like the prayer and 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 like uh, the wrestling stuff in Memphis. That just it is a thing you need to do to find a thing that connects with your audience. That I think. You probably do have to worry about more in a place like this than you have to worry about it in New York or Chicago. And, and, and uh, you know, New Orleans is another place where you have to think about those things. 
So how did you end up going from New Orleans two years ago to, to OKC this past season? Um, so I was, I was a freelancer in New Orleans. I left the job. I was working at Rivals covering Kentucky, and I just wanted to get into the NBA. And the advocate in New Orleans – New Orleans, by the way, is a ridiculous media market as an aside in the sense that you know th- there's nobody who covers like even 60% of the Pelicans games because nobody really travels to every game. The, the Times-Picayune doesn't, and the advocate didn't, doesn't have a full-time beat writer. It's the, the advocate is the largest paper in the state. It's the second biggest in New Orleans because it also circulates in Baton Rouge. Um, but there, there was no full-time writer there. And I, I had kind of gotten connected to the sports editor there who wanted to hire a full-time NBA writer, but couldn't kind of get it cleared. And I basically just said, my contract was up with Yahoo and I had the option to renew if I wanted. And I just decided I didn't, I wanted to go to new Orleans and work freelance and, uh, cover the Pelicans for the advocate. Cause it was my way to get in. So it was my way to get in the, the, the door uh, with the NBA. So, um, I did that for a year and it was a tough thing to do. It's hard to do. It's hard to live freelance and pay your own insurance and, uh, medical bills and things like that mount up and it gets kind of crazy and, uh, debt is a thing that happens. Um, and so when the, uh, when I, I was looking for every, every opportunity, every full-time job, uh, that came open, I was going to apply for it. And, uh, when Anthony Slater left here to go cover golden state, I mean, I, I want to say that I, I saw Slater's tweet that he was leaving let's say it was seven 15 some night. Uh, and I think by eight o'clock I had sent them, you know, a cover letter, uh, all my clips. And I just told them, I want this job. I, I want to do this, you know, and this is, here's the story. Here's what I did. I quit my job to go cover the NBA. That's how much I want to do it. And so, you know, I want to, I want to do it there. Um, and so ultimately, uh, you know, when, when Slater was here, Eric Horn was kind of the number two guy, uh, on the beat. And what they did when Slater left was kind of just elevate that to like two co number ones instead of a one and two. So Eric and I split the beat. We're both at every home game. We split the road games evenly. Um, but yeah, it was just like a situation where I was going to apply for any of them. And this one felt like a really great one. It just felt like a fun thing to cover. And I was super, super excited about it. Really. I'd spent like a day in Oklahoma in my life before this, but I was really, really excited about just a full-time opportunity. Yeah, we, we had Slater on the pod a, f- a few months ago. Now we're having you. Now we need to go find the guy that took your old job. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's there really isn't be- a full-time guy, though. He's like, it's another str- it's another freelancer who had been kind of doing it before and huh. now is doing a little bit more now that I'm gone because they don't they just don't have a full-time guy there. Hmm. That That is crazy to me. So, I mean, how many full-time Thunderbeat writers are there? It seems like there's at least, you know, just being on Twitter and, and obviously, you know, Royce Young kind of does national stuff out of there. What, three, four, five? And then New Orleans doesn't even have one? Yeah, so there's three, f- three who I would like Eric, uh, Eric and I, and then Royce and mm-hmm. Fred Katz at Norman. Sure, like the four of us are, you know, between Eric and me, we're at every road game. Fred is at most of them. Uh, Royce is at a good percentage. Royce probably goes to more. Uh, he does go to more Thunder road games than anybody goes uh, to Pelicans road games. So. Uh, in New Orleans, it's one full-time guy. It's whoever is at the Times-Picayune at the time. I say guy because it's only been guys since I've been there. Uh, I don't want to be like ex- ex- exclusive there. Um, but but uh, John Reed just left uh, this summer. He didn't really f- uh, cover the team last year in New Orleans at the Times-Picayune. He got another job. He was out because of a family illness, and he moved Jack closer Wires, to his family. Right? Yeah, he's with the Jags, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's his, his family. Uh, he had some uh, an illness in his family in Jacksonville. That's where he's from. And so he moved down there. And I don't think they've named their full-time writer – but whoever it is, they'll have a full-time employee who covers them for the Times-Picayune, but they won't travel much at all. I think John went to maybe I, – I don't know if John or I went to more road games the year that I covered the Pelicans, and I was a freelancer, and I think I only went to five or six maybe. So uh, there's just very little travel with them. It's a market that's hard to get much traction in because, like, look, 
obviously, you know, the Saints are the biggest thing in the city, but LSU football is the second biggest thing in the city. LSU is an hour and 15 minutes away, maybe. Um, and, and like from our perspective, like in terms of the way we covered it and the way people read it, I'm not sure that like LSU baseball isn't more popular in <laughs> wow. the city than the Pelicans are. They don't draw more, but, but they might be more popular in terms of just how much people care. I absolutely buy that. I was uh, I was at the LSU Wisconsin game up at Lambeau uh, back this this past September, and I mean that was that was a full week long event for LSU fans. Um, I mean there we we talked to people just tailgating who took the whole week off work. They rented out houses in Green Bay, stayed up there all week. Obviously went to the game on Saturday, and then we got into the stadium. One whole half of that was completely purpled out. Um, so yeah, I mean that's that's just a statewide thing down there. Yeah, my first year, my first year in Champaign, uh, Illinois played LSU in the Sugar Bowl, and like it was so funny. People came back just sort of dazed. They were like, "We didn't expect those people." They just they, <laughs> Illinois people were just kind of a little blown away by by oh, LSU wait. fans. Wait, so was that the Juice Williams team? Uh, that was before Juice. I was there. Pre-Juice, I, okay. I'm trying, I think Juice was being recruited when I left. Gotcha. Maybe. <laughs> Oh man, that was—I mean, that for for most of my entire life, like Illinois football has just not been relevant. But there was that two or three year blip with you know, Juice Williams, Rashard Mendenhall, and who was the Aurelius Ben? I think was the receiver. Don't look at me like I'm going to help you. Ex, out. ex Jaguars, great Aurelius Ben. Yeah, Regis, they called him. Regis, of course. Um, one one more quick thing on the on the kind of market conversation that we were having. Is there any concern that if Oklahoma City were to kind of fall off as a team? Um, you know, if you look since the start of the 2010 season, they're second in the league uh, among wins behind only San Antonio. You know, if Russell Westbrook were to leave, if Paul George were to leave and, and things were to go south because Oklahoma City's never really seen a bad team since the move. Is there a chance that that market size would kind of start to resemble more of the situation in New Orleans? Or do you think that OKC over these last you know almost 10 years has done enough to kind of solidify its place in that community? Yeah, I think until it happens, um, it's hard to say. I mean, I think if you look at what they've done, they've they've taken an approach that not very many teams have taken, and and I think it's partially because of that fear of what will happen if it's if it's not good. They've tried to never bottom out. One of the things they've always done, and they've look they've pushed in to try to get to get you know, championship contending teams. They haven't gotten every free agent they wanted, but they've gone after the big ones. They've made some big trades. They've traded some some first round picks to try to get players who they thought would put them over the hump. You know, they've done those things. Um, but they've always done it with an eye of of never sort of exhausting their pool of young talent, always kind of having some young talent in reserve. Um, figuring out ways to stay good and then get from good to great. That's the way they're trying to build. San Antonio's kind of done this. San Antonio hasn't really bottomed out. You know, even when in the years when San Antonio's not great, still pretty good. And I think that's what they're trying to do here. And if they can do that, and it's it's really hard to maintain. Nobody does it ever. I mean, nobody can do that over the long haul. But they've done it for 10 years. Um, I think if they can do that, they've built enough sort of equity here that it is like the one thing you notice about this, even this year when they were – look, they were 47. They won 47 games and they were the sixth seed. And obviously Westbrook was a huge draw. But I mean – they have I, I we travel you know i go around the league these guys can play nobody on a tuesday night and this place is wall to wall you can't get in and so 
that they have built that here. They've built a, a great following and a culture that it's like it's what you do is show up. The test for that is going to be if they really bottom out, so we don't know. But they've at least laid a really good groundwork. The Pelicans, the year before I started covering them, were good, and they were in the playoff hunt, and it took way deep into the year for the, for the fans to really show up. They, they, they had a good following when they were the Hornets, when the Hornets were good. That kind of eroded and went away, and then it, 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 it took a while for it to get back. They've never had that sort of consistently sustained success that builds a fan base in that way, and, and I do think that's a huge advantage they have here that they've done that. I sure hope so as a Thunder fan, but man, I tell you what, for the last few years, I've just been, you know, very pessimistic to be quite honest with you because, you know, in exactly one year's time, we, we could be looking at a team with Ennis Cantor being the best player on the team. If, if he's oh. the only one that opts in, oh, come on. Alex Abrinas. Uh, yeah, Abrinas. I mean, I've been pessimistic because, you know, I've, I've been looking at the contracts for a long time now, and I, and I hope for your sake and my sake that uh, the Thunder are not, you know, essentially the worst team in the league in the third smallest market for a few years because, uh, you know, a rebuild is going to take a couple years in a small market like that. I mean, you have to think, right? You'd have to think, uh, although, I mean, the one thing I, the other thing I've learned in a very short period of time here is like, I, I no longer doubt anything that Sam Presti wants to That's do. That's true. I mean, like, I had no sense in my mind that there was any chance they would get Paul George, and then boom, they have Paul George. So, uh, you know, he, he does some things. He took a guy in Cameron Payne that they, they really couldn't play uh, and turned him into something uh, and it's by sending him to a team that also won't play him. So, I mean, th- he's a smart guy. He's, you know, he's, I think he's one of those guys who's, uh, you know, when, when you start talking about the really innovative guys, Maury, I think Presti is one of those guys who's going to be high up in that conversation. So they have vision. That, uh, I think they have a long-term adaptability and, a, and a, they have a, a view of things that, you know, they've mapped all this out. If this ha- if the worst case scenario happens for them, they've got a contingency plan for it, I'm sure. I don't know exactly what it is, um, but I, I wouldn't put it past them to navigate it. So if they have it all mapped out and, you know, the the – the rhetoric I'm hearing around this when everybody talks about it and all my friends text me, they say, you know, the Thunder didn't have to give up that much to acquire a Paul George. And I just want to say, hold the brakes real quick. And I really want to get your perspective on this because let's say George is only here one year. Does one year of Paul George really outweigh three Oladipo seasons plus three Sabonis seasons? I mean, that's that's six years versus one year. Granted, that one year should be a lot better than those other six. But I mean, I, I don't know if the Thunder, quote unquote, didn't have to give up that much to acquire Paul George. Well, I think I think they gave up what they had to give up. You know, th- that's what they had to do to get him. And that doesn't seem like a whole lot to me to give up to get Paul George. I think here, here's the two twofold sort of, I think, philosophical look at it the way the way I think they look at it. And this isn't something Presti's like talked about. So there's there's two things. One is that you've got 29 year old Russell Westbrook. He's going to be 29 when the season starts. And so what are you doing with him right now? Um, what kind of chance are you taking uh, if you don't make moves like this? I think that's one thing that you have to look at. And the other thing is like, what exactly are you giving up if you keep Oladipo and Sabonis? If you have a sense of what your ceiling is, you know, the the risky play to me is kind of not going after Paul George if that's what you have to give up because who knows, your best case scenario is so good, uh, which is that he likes it here and stays, and I think it's a long shot, but that's your best case scenario that I think it's absolutely worth gambling a, a few more years of 45, 46, 47 wins. Uh, if you got to bottom out at some point, you bottom out at some point. But I, I think from their perspective, uh, if that's what you have to give up to go try to make a move and try to be great, uh, I, that's sort of the, what they've set themselves up to do. They want to be a great team. They want to be a title contender. They want to send a message that 
if you are Russell Westbrook or whoever might be the next guy who comes along after Russell Westbrook, they're going to try to do everything they can to surround you with the stuff that you need. Um, and I, I, I think that's just sort of part of their identity. And they felt like that was something that they had to do. So I think it, it's a matter of what are you, what do you have if you're, if you have these next three years of Oladipo and Sabonis and they like Sabonis, they think he's going to be a good player. Um, and they were fond of Oladipo, but I always thought when they signed that contract, I never thought Oladipo was going to finish that contract here. That's such a tradable deal. Um, getting him under control at a number that was not the max. I always thought there were going to be takers on Oladipo if they wanted to make a big move. Um, and so that, that I think, you know, I think in, to some degree that was always in their thinking. So you said you never really thought OKC was going to be an option for Paul George. I didn't either. I mean, DJ and I basically had that conversation when the trade happened. You know, there were the the three or four teams that had come up. You know, obviously Cleveland was in that discussion. Um, but like never, ever, ever did OKC cross anyone's mind because you look up and down that roster and you're like, OK, you know, nobody really wants Kander's contract, especially after, you know, how he was exposed in the postseason. They're obviously not going to trade Westbrook. I mean, in some ways, is Victor Oladipo, um, you know, Kevin Pritchard's version uh, of Buddy Heald and, and how like <laughs> overvalued he seemed to be, you know, by Sacramento? Well, I do. I do wonder about this. I've asked some people and nobody will tell me this. So I, I don't know. But like I, if Victor Oladipo had played at UCLA, would they have made that deal? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I do think there's a value. Look, Indiana is one of those places where. You do have to do a little work to sell tickets. We've seen sometimes when when their fans won't show up. Basketball's it's a basketball crazed place. You guys know that, but it's a college basketball crazed place first. And even that, like anybody looked at Indiana the last few years and looked at the the attendance, like people people don't show up. So you, you have to you got to do some things that will appeal to people. And he is one of those. Look, the first time I met Oladipo, I did you know we talked about whether I had talked to Raymond Felton about that championship game. The first time I talked to Oladipo when I got here, I did talk to him about the Kentucky game. I covered it, the one they won on the Christian Watford mm-hmm. game winner. And 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 I don't remember the date, but Oladipo reeled the date off to me. He said it was December whatever, two thousand eleven probably the greatest day of my life. Uh, and, and he feels that way about Indiana and Indiana has these strong feelings for him. And so I do think it makes a huge difference. If he had been some other guy from some other school who was like a really good, solid NBA player, I don't know that he'd have had the same appeal. I think that might've been a real good stroke of luck for them. No, I feel the same way. I, I think it's kind of like a, Hey, we, we lost Paul George. Sorry, but Hey, wait, look, remember this guy, he was really good right. at Indiana a few years ago. Like, I, don't, I mean, what's next? Are they going to, is Cody Zeller coming back? No, is, is people, DJ white getting a no, 10 day? People are, are undervaluing Victor Oladipo. I think he fell in the shadow of Russell Westbrook. And of course he's he a good played. player. I, I think he's way better than people have made him out to be. I mean, sure, I, but he's I mean, he's not a Paul George replacement. Oh yeah. But of course there's like, you know, a handful of Paul George replacements, right? There's only a handful. Yeah, I mean, maybe ten players, I guess. Um, Yeah, I mean, and I think the overall discussion of what this move means is so shaped by the Warriors and even the Cavs to some degree. Like you put Russell Westbrook and Paul George on a team that has a really good wing defender in Robertson, has a really good stretch four, and then has you know one of the best young centers under twenty five in the NBA. And Adam was like, that team is the best team in the West. Maybe what five out of the last ten years? You know, you throw you throw that team in like 2013. Uh, even with you know, let's say Durant's not even on the roster like he was in 2013. Like that Oklahoma City team's probably the title favorite, and we're looking that looking at them now as I don't know is Westbrook and George enough to really get them to the West Finals? Like it just speaks to how strongly the rest of the conference and especially the Warriors is built right now. Yeah, I mean, and that's part of the thing. The Warriors are no doubt. You know, there, there's two ways to approach the Warriors. Uh, run away or or p- 
push in and see what you can do. And obviously, like Houston and Oklahoma City have said, we're not going to run away. Let's just see what we can do. And you still know you've built teams that are have probably too many flaws to beat the Warriors. But there are teams, these two in particular, who are saying, let's just let's let's make a run. Houston's kind of the same way. You know, it's so many years past you would have been like, man, James Harden and Chris Paul. Wow. Think about that. Right. Exactly. But, you know, you compare it to the Warriors. It's like, OK, whatever. But, yeah, I mean, I, I do think that, you know, they, they've they've decided that's what they're going to do. And I, I think there's no doubt, no doubt that some of this for them is it is again, it's that Russell Westbrook will be 29 when the season starts and you've got a finite number of years left with one of the best players in the league and, and one of the two cornerstone pieces of your franchise. He's not going to be able to do this forever. And so what are you going to do with the time that you have him? And I think the statement they've made is we're going to try to be really good to the extent that like they're going to go into the tax. They're going to, they're going to go well into the tax. And, and if Paul George wants to come back, they're going to go into the repeater tax and pay a lot of money. Uh, and that's a message that they've sent to say, this is how much we value competing and trying to be really good. I think the Warriors have also made it easier for teams to take those kind of leaps and take those kind of chances, uh, just just because you have to throw you got to throw everything at Golden State and you need a lot of things to break your way to beat that team. And I think fan bases are are more willing to say like, look, if we can get Paul George and we can make a run at him, we're willing to sacrifice the future because you know everybody wants to beat this team so badly, and we're seeing it now. I mean, the amount of you know top fifteen, top twenty players in the league who are teaming up. The stigma of what LeBron and Bosch and Wade did in 2010 is totally gone. I mean, they, they were killed for, you know, the lack of competitive spirit, wanting to just team up and beat everybody. And the, with the way that the Warriors have built that roster, it's just become okay to do that because unless you have at least two or three all-stars on your team, you have no chance against them. Yeah, and it also, I mean, look, that's going to be the basis, I think, of part of the recruiting pitch mm-hmm. for Paul George is going to be like, okay, if LeBron wants to go to the Lakers and you want to go to the Lakers with LeBron, that's one thing. But if LeBron doesn't go to the Lakers, if you're the Thunder, your your pitch to Paul George is like, look, you, you can't go to the Lakers and compete with these guys. They don't have what you have to have. You need Russell Westbrook and whatever else we can put around you. And look, we've proven to Russell that we're going to do this over the course of time. We're going to get you what you need to have to compete. So the the pitch is going to be, if, if they're successful here, if they win, it's going to be, look, this is going to be hard for you to get somewhere else because you probably need a third guy. And we've already at least got you the two, you know, so that I think that's part of the whole pitch that everybody's going to make right now. The Warriors are, are, are kind of the, the central focus of the league in, in almost every way. So what's going on with Terrence Ferguson? Uh, hasn't signed yet, still working out FIBA clearance after playing in Australia last season. Uh, I'm not panicking too much because the Thunder were in a similar spot with Sabonis last summer. He didn't yep. sign until August 12th, but is a deal coming soon for Ferguson? I don't know about soon, but I think I, I expect it to get done. I, I don't think there's any, there is no expectation that 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 won't happen. He's going to eventually get that clearance, and there's not, it's not like a big holdout situation. It's just a matter of getting that cleared. Uh, so I would expect that's going to happen. There's been no, you know, his team in Australia has has no, there's not any fight on their part. They wished him well as he left. There was no kind of animosity there. It's really just a matter of paperwork, and he's not the only guy waiting on it. There's a couple. Of, there's at least one other guy who's dealing with that right now. So um, I, I think that's going to get done. The the thing about it is like they would have really liked to get it done before summer league, and then once it didn't get done in time for summer league, it's not a super high priority. So they're not sweating it. You know, they'd like to get it done. They'd like to have it out of the way and get him signed and and you know know that he's in the fold. But like without summer league, the the, the idea of you know the the pressure was to get it done before summer league. That didn't happen. So now it's kind of like a back burner thing. They've got other stuff to worry about, and he'll he'll be here when he's here. And he's look, he's not going to play a ton anyway. But I, they do want him in camp, and they do want him to be ready to practice with these guys and learn everything he can from Paul George and all that. 
did the Thunder know that this was going to be part of the process in taking Ferguson? Uh, I, you know, I don't know exactly. I don't know exactly when they, uh, Presti, you know, we talk about the fact that we never heard about them as never thought about them as a team. Presti is, is so secretive about things that even in just asking him after the fact, like I've tried to get just a sense of the timeline. Like, when did you have a sense this might work? And he doesn't really talk about those things. He keeps those dealings very quiet. One thing he always says, uh, this is sort of his default answer. When you talk about things like that, like when did you know you had a chance and all that? He always says the only the only guy that ever knows if, if how close you are is the other guy. So you'd have to ask Kevin Pritchard that like we don't know when it was a thing. You know, that's that's up to him because the other guy makes the decision about whether he accepts the trade. So he doesn't really talk about that. I know that they were obviously this was a conversation. This was a, a thought they had. Um, you know, and, and I think they had always wanted to do this. It was a matter of I, I don't think they could have gotten in before. What happened, you know, once his agent told the the Pacers he wasn't going to resign and that the preference was the Lakers, his value dropped. And the reason that we never thought they were going to be in the picture is they don't have a first round pick to trade until 2022. And if I'm Kevin Pritchard, I'm thinking, like, I'm not going to be here in 2022. You know, you can't you can't think that far ahead as as a GM who's making decisions. So obviously, if you're going to be looking for draft picks, the Thunder were going to be out of it. So once I think once his value changed, they had a chance to get in there. So I don't know exactly um, but but I do think now, now that they have both guys, I think they view that as an opportunity for Ferguson. Let's finish this out with a round of rapid fire questions for Brett. I'll kick things off. Favorite place to eat in Bricktown? Oh, Bricktown. Uh, I don't. I don't ever go to Bricktown. That's oh, not that's easy. Not, that's, Hopefully, nobody from Oklahoma City is listening to this. I no. There's great restaurants here, but they're just not. They're not in Bricktown. Kitchen Three Two Four is my favorite restaurant. It's downtown. All right, there we go. I like it. All right, Oklahoma or Oklahoma State. Uh, DJ put this one in here. I said to him, "You know, Brett went to Kentucky, right?" And he said, "No, no, no. He he has to choose now." And DJ told me that I wouldn't understand. So is that true? Once you get to Oklahoma, you have to choose a side between Oklahoma or Oklahoma State. I remain entirely impartial um, because I, I don't have to choose. I don't. I don't. I don't have to root for either one of them. Plus, uh, actually, you know what? The uh, like the biggest Thunder fan I know, and I mean physically biggest, is an Oklahoma State fan, and he's going to listen to this, so I'm just going to say Oklahoma State. There you go. Because I, I I want to stay on his good side. There we go. I was I was almost unconvinced that you even live in Oklahoma. Hadn't eaten in Bricktown. Won't pick between OU or OSU. I wonder about your Oklahoma credentials. If you like, wow. Bricktown is Bricktown is for tourists, dude. Oh, like that's wow. You gotta be. You, in, got, you gotta get the. Gotta get to the Plaza District. You gotta get Midtown. You gotta get Uptown. Oh, you no, know no. what, guys? We have not been recording one second of this so far. Just kidding. Oh my god. I was <laughs> all right. Well, do you do you want me to step out for a second? You guys can hash this out. Just call me back in. I just booked a flight to Oklahoma City. We're gonna hash this out in person. <laughs> you gotta venture. You gotta venture out. You gotta expand your horizons. Next time uh, you come, let, let somebody who's lived here for a whole ten months show you around the city. All right. <laughs> all right. So, who's your favorite Kentucky basketball player of all time? Oh, geez, Jamal Mashburn, probably. Oh, great, great choice. All right. If you don't like my Oklahoma City questions, how about a Lexington question? So, I've been to Tally Ho Restaurant on campus. Okay. I thought it was super underwhelming. Do you think it's overrated? It is every. Uh, every one of those places, every one of those like greasy spoons that's mm-hmm. affiliated with a college campus, they're all overrated. They're good because you went to college there. Yes. Yep, totally nice. agree. Mickey's Mickey's Dairy Bar in exactly. Madison is that. Everybody talks about it. Every time college game day comes to town, there's a feature on it. It's not that good. Who's going to be the worst team in the NBA next season? Oh, wow. That's a good question that I have not thought about. Um, 
it's so weird because you know my default answer is just to say Sacramento, but I don't I don't think they're going to be yeah, quite. They, they as brought bad. in just enough veterans to like, maybe get yeah. that eleven spot in the West. Yeah, that's uh, it's. I mean, geez, I kind of want to say it's going to be the Knicks, just because like what happens if they trade Carmelo for nothing? Um, but I, like, let's just I'll just stay st- tried and true and say it's still going to be the Nets. The Nets are going to be mm-hmm. real bad still. I think that's a safe answer. I think the Nets. I, th- I think the Bulls and the Hawks could maybe surprise some people. Oh, uh, Bulls, like Bulls are a good team. <laughs> the Hawks have nothing. I mean, the Schroeder is the Hawks' best player, right? Am I forgetting anyone? And their second best player Bazemore. is yeah, Bazemore slash Torian Prince. Oof. Well, the weird that's thing not- is that uh, is it John Collins? Yeah, John Collins like could win Rookie of the Year. He could be a dark horse for Rookie of the Year just because he has he's in line for minutes. And he might just play thirty five minutes a game, right? Right. So who's funnier, Ennis Cantor or Steven Adams? Oh, that's a really good question. That's a tough one. I would say that Ennis is funnier because they're both really funny. But Ennis is funnier more of the time. Adams is actually like a really smart, thoughtful basketball guy. Like he has a really good sense of the game. And so you can ask him really serious questions and get a really serious, thought, well-thought-out answer. Whereas with Ennis, it's all kind of funny. Like everything is sort of with a with an undertone of humor. So like he, he doesn't answer anything too seriously. So I'm going to say it's Ennis. So have you talked to him about his Kentucky experience at all? I remember watching, you know, because when Calipari started showing up, uh, the, the Midnight Madness event became this like giant spectacle at Kentucky. And I remember seeing Ennis Cantor standing on this huge platform wearing like a matador outfit and at that point, he was just this mystery international man who was, you know, a projected lottery pick and was supposed to dominate. Never heard from him again at the college level. Obviously, he had some eligibility issues. Do you know what exactly happened with that situation? Or does he identify like as a Kentucky Wildcat, um, you know, not, I guess, an alum? Yeah, he does. Um, I, I was actually there. I was at the Courier Journal that year. So I talked to him maybe once that year. They didn't let him talk to us very much because mm-hmm. the investigation was ongoing. But he essentially he was like he was a pro in Turkey. And the NCAA just said he his his amateur status had been violated. And his argument, the argument that they kind of went with because it was of the moment was like it was the Cam Newton argument. Like his dad had actually received the money and he had not actually been paid and that they had set aside money for a scholarship that he or uh, money to send him to America to go to college and that that's what he wanted to do and that was always his intent so that was their argument but the bottom line was like he had just been paid too much by a pro team um, and so you know just the NCAA never allowed him to do it he's still uh, very bitter about it still mad that he didn't get to play the one year uh, very much identifies as a Kentucky guy you know when they when he talks about guys like um, uh, from his team, like Brandon Knight is still in the league. You know, uh, he calls those guys, my teammates, you know, he, he still feels very strongly about that place. Yeah. I can understand why he was confused. Cause I mean, they pay Kentucky players too. So okay. he didn't really, uh, just kidding. Okay. Just kidding. Yeah. yeah. Are you, uh, you going to make the, Oh, he took, I bet he took a pay cut to go to Kentucky. <laughs> uh, favorite NFL. That's team. the first time anybody's made that joke. That's good. All right. <laughs> nice. <laughs> favorite NFL team. Oh, yeah. You know what? I literally don't have one. I do not like the NFL at all. I don't wow. track it at all. I don't keep up with it. Um, we can probably maybe we should blame the Bengals. They were the like geographically closest one to me and they weren't very good. So maybe that's that's why. But uh, I it, it really stems from like covering college sports for a long time, especially when you cover college football. You have this, you know, that is the most routine sort of sport you can cover football. It's you know what's going to happen every week. Every week is basically the same. And so when I covered colleges, I worked every Saturday and then your work week kind of restarts on Mondays. And Sunday was like your one free day. And I was just I was not going to sit around watching football on my day off. So um, it's just not something that I track at all. I, I like I can't name 10 quarterbacks. 
Wow, that's we, we won't challenge you on that. No, we're um, not going to take you up on that. Um, well, do you, I do have to ask you? I'm a, a tried and true Jacksonville Jaguars fan, uh, not to brag or anything. But do you know where <laughs> Justin Blackman is? Last I'd heard, he was hanging out somewhere in Oklahoma. I don't, and I would probably need to Google who that is. Okay, wow. fair enough. All fair right, enough. We, he was uh, he was a, a high first round pick of the Jaguars five or six years ago out of Oklahoma State, upstanding citizen, and See, got my, into some my, trouble. Uh, my Oklahoma State allegiance that I just pledged just taking a hit already. My my Oklahoma State <laughs> right. street cred is not. No, you not remember great. Justin, you know. Yeah, as long as long as you grow out a mullet within the next five months, you're on track to be an Oklahoma State fan. So back to now, the Marcus NBA. Smart. Then. I got Marcus Smart. I know that stuff. I know the basketball stuff. There okay, deal. There, there we go. go. Uh, Andre Roberson's free throw percentage next season over under fifty percent. All right. First of all, speaking of street cred, yours just took a hit. It's Robertson. Robertson. Um, all right. Yeah, fair. Fair. Yeah. Fair. If you, if you want people to think you know about the NBA, just make sure you always say Robertson because like it's a dead giveaway that you're not paying attention to the Thunder if you say Robertson. By the way, most recent guy to say Robertson, Paul George. So <laughs> yeah. you're, you're in I mean, good, good company. company. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like everybody says it, but it, it, Billy Donovan says it. Sometimes. To be fair, I do go back and forth. Well, you, I will say that. You got snubbed from all NBA this year too. So you and Paul George, Ooh, more in common than yes, people think. That's right. Uh, I'm going to take... Uh, I'm going to take the, oof, man, uh, I, that's the number where it's, it's the good over under. Cause it's like the number that where I think you can be a little conflicted. Cause I do think he's going to have spent a lot of time on it. He works on it. That's the one thing. Like I, I can't tell people this enough that we go in there and he's working on a shot after practice. He's trying to get better free throws. So I'm just going to say, because I think it's not that hard to do. And I see the work he puts in it. I'm going to go over. I don't think he's gonna be way over, but I'll say over 50. I'm going to, I'm going to do Dre solid and say that. Is this the basketball version of the Yips? Maybe, although he's never, like, in his NBA career, he has not been good at it. He was right. never as bad. Last year in the playoffs, that felt like the Yips. Right. I thought, I thought so, too. Like, it, Houston was, was almost taunting him that's, by putting him on the line. Yeah, that's crazy bad. Like, he's not that bad. Well, mm-hmm. you, you um, talked about I, Westbrook intimidating Sabonis. I mean, is there some of that same intimidation? Does, doesn't want to let Russell down? Maybe. I mean, it could be. Uh, it, it could also just be that... that you know, the, I think there is a psychological advantage to the hacker thing mm-hmm. for the for the opponent. Um, so maybe it was just that, just the idea of like above and beyond Russell, just making him feel that pressure. Um, but maybe, I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't put it past them. I think those guys do very much feel like this need to kind of perform for Russell Westbrook. It is such a weird case with Robertson because you know generally when you have these horrible horrible free throw shooters, they're seven footers. They're DeAndre Jordan. They're Andre Drummond. They're these guys that have these mammoth hands and just don't have their balance right. Whatever it might be. And they don't shoot threes. But like Robertson, he's not a good three-point shooter. I mean, he was at like 25% last year. But, I mean, he was comfortable taking more than two threes a game. He shot above 30% two years ago. Like, it's very odd to me that he can be a borderline capable three-point shooter, but just horrendous at the free throw line. It Usually, but, you know, those kind of go hand in hand. Fundamentally, they seem to have some of the same issues. It's like the, the arch he puts on both of them. Yeah. The arc is just so dramatic. It's just like way too high. Uh, and maybe that's just like more of a problem for a free throw i don't know the the sort of uh i don't know the geometry behind it although i will say like i get this the weirdest thing about one of the weird things about covering the thunder i get like let like handwritten letters with like diagrams drawn on them like here's what he should do he should line up (laughs) over here and put this foot behind that foot and like we get a lot of that kind of stuff as if you're just going to pass those along to the coaching staff. Yeah, just slip them some notes because, like, I, I mean, I assume they're not trying to make it any better. Why, you know, like, right? No, why would uh, they care? Presumably, only the fans are thinking about how to make Andre Robertson a better free throw shooter. Lonzo Ball or De'Aaron Fox for the next ten years? Who would you take? Oh man, um, 
I really, really, really like Fox a lot. I watched uh, more of him than I did of uh, of Ball. So I've seen a little bit more of Fox. Um, but, like, I don't know. Like, I watched a little bit of the Summer League. I was I'm sort of entranced by the stuff that Lonzo does. Um, he looks so, like, he has such a weird Jason Kidd-like thing to him. Like, that little that little punch of the ball he did the other day mm-hmm. where he just, like, punches the ball ahead. Um, so I'm going to say Lonzo. I like, I, I just, I just have a, I have a, f- a feeling about Lonzo. I don't know. It's, I'm, I feel like I'm betraying my like year long analysis, but I didn't watch that much of Lonzo. I just, I do really like Fox. Um, neither one of them can shoot, but that happens over time. I think they'll get to be better shooters. Um, and Lonzo's not a terrible percentage shooter, right? It's just ugly looking. No. So right. no, he was, he was 45% plus from the field last year. His three point shooting yeah. was great. I, I do wonder like in terms of like an arsenal of NBA type of moves, that you need to to be a big time scoring guard in the NBA. I don't know if Lonzo has like if you watched Dennis Smith at all in summer league. You know you're seeing he's hitting those Kyrie type of shots where it's well defended. Yeah. He's he's got his back to the basket, spins in midair. Like Lonzo doesn't have that. The way that his mechanics work, like it just it's not physically possible basically for him unless he's kind of squared up to the basket. But he doesn't have that mentality either. No, exactly. I don't think he needs it. Like he's such a good passer that like I think I think in the next couple of years he's going to lead the league in triple doubles while scoring fewer than 15 points. Yeah. Like. I mean, I would set the over-under for this year at, like, seven triple-doubles for him, and, like, I don't think he'll get to 20 points in any of them. He's going to have a lot of, like, 12, 11, 10 type of games, which is yeah, Fox, exactly what Fox Jason is gonna did. Score. Fox is going to score. Right. He's, Fox has a lot of John Wall to him. Yep. Um, everybody thinks that. Everybody talks about it. Fox even – I think they had, like, a relationship when he was mm-hmm. even in high school, um, and he kind of patterned himself after him. So he's going to score points. He's so fast, and – uh, but I, I just I, I wonder I, I I like the stuff that Lonzo does to make you better. I'm just really right. intrigued by him. All right, we ask this to every guest: best jersey you currently own or owned as a child? Oh my gosh! Um, I let's see. What, oh, you know, I don't. I haven't had very many, so I don't have very many to choose from. But I did own a Larry Johnson Charlotte jersey. So that would be that would be the one. Excellent answer. Wow, very good. Nick just had Grandma. to get a glass of water here. Uh, just two more here for you before we let you go. Favorite player to chat with? Oh, geez. Um, man, that is a long list, too. Uh, if I had to narrow it down, just to, to sort be of on this year's chat team. with. Could be over the course of your. It's probably just because he's an absurd person and just so fun to spend any time talking to. It's probably Willie Cauley-Stein. Um, he's just such an odd guy and he's interested in so many things outside of basketball. He loves art. Uh, he's into comic books and skateboarding and he's just like a, and he's, he's, he's got a great sense of humor. He loves to make fun of people who make fun of him on Twitter. Uh, he talks about how he could just like, he could tweet that he's going to eat hot dogs and people would complain about how he's not shooting free throws or whatever. He's just like a fun dude to talk to. And I just, I enjoy his, the way his brain works. I wish we would have had this podcast literally one week ago because I, <clears throat> I had a layover and I was sitting right next to Willie Colley Stein for maybe an hour and a half. And I just got too nervous to even approach him. <laughs> I just, I didn't know what to say. I, I mean, I could have said some stuff, but I really would have felt prepared if we had this podcast a week ago. That is that is so weird to me because it's I mean, it's not like it's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I know. You know? I know. I it's know, Willie Cauley-Stein. Like he's he's just a dude. You could you could have you could have definitely struck up a conversation. Um, you could have just said that you follow him on Twitter. You could have just said, uh, you know, if you ever see him again, if you're ever in an airport, just say, uh, hey, I, you know, I like I like some of your paintings. He'd love oh, that. Wow. He did have a Louis Vuitton uh, suitcase. So. Uh, that seems about right. Yeah. yeah. Like, please Stein bring to- back the half Afro bright bright blonde look that you had at, at times at kentucky also i'll tell you here's what you ask him about 
like Willie Cauley Stein, and I'm not, this is not an exaggeration. It's not like a thing that he said wants to be funny. He has a strategy for a zombie apocalypse. He knows what he's going to do. <laughs> like he's has, got he, it all has, he, has he divulged those plans to you? No, no, no. It's not, he doesn't go into detail, but he has it. He's, he's, he promises he's cooked it up. He and Alex Poitras cooked it up together at Kentucky. Sure. He has a, he has a whole big strategy. He knows exactly. He's like a huge walking dead guy and he's, he is prepared <laughs> for the future. I mean, somehow that really doesn't surprise me all that no. much. Um, really wouldn't if you spent any time with him. <laughs> <laughs> okay, final question before we let you go. We've already kept you uh, longer than we told you that we would. I hope this is the right number. I just set this arbitrarily, but over under 52 wins for the Oklahoma City Thunder this season. They won 47 games last year. Yeah, I'm going to take the over on that because 53 is yes. just the number I've sort of had in my head. Okay. It's like that's sort of the, the one I've been sitting on. Um, and like, by the way, if they had not made changes, I would have gone under 47. I don't think they were going to get better because they were just incredibly good in the clutch. It was unbelievable. So I think that was going to be hard to replicate, but they're a much better team. I mean, and I think, I think Billy Donovan is a tinkerer. He's like a real experimenter. He does a lot of interesting stuff with lineups and he just had so little last year to kind of work with and so few options that he could do that would give him what he needed in terms of having a team that could both space the floor on offense and could defend you at the other end and switch and do the things that you got to do that they want to do again, especially in smaller lineups. Now he's got all those things. I think he's got just like this full, full sort of toolbox to work with. Um, I think they're going to be dramatically better. I don't know where that'll be in the West. Um, but I, I do think I'm, I'm, I'm in that 53 sort of range in my head. All right. I think that's all we have. Do you guys have any restaurant, arguments you guys want to hash out before we finish up yeah i mean just the the, I, the bricktown thing baffles me like i've never <laughs> met somebody who lives here who's like oh you where you have to go to hang out is bricktown all right all right well hopefully we have you on during the season we'll, we'll figure out something else and uh maybe i'll give you my top 10 bricktown restaurants to eat at <laughs> i will say hooters unfortunately has to be pretty high on that because there are only like 10 there are only like 10 restaurants hooters? in bricktown yeah yeah this I know. is the thing you're making it you're ma- you're sort of making my argument for me right. here, but there's only like 10 restaurants it's a great like, great knows, hooters who, well here's the thing are you uh, please tell me that toby keith's isn't on your list all right this podcast is over. is that is toby keith's and hooters different are those two different places <laughs> i just know that toby keith's is in bricktown <laughs> um yeah, that's definitely pretty high on the list, and, and I'm coming around to your side of the argument, Brett, so you won me over. Uh, all, right. all right, Brett, this was awesome. Really appreciate you taking the time, man. We'll have to do this again sometime, uh, maybe as the season gets closer or during the season. Yeah, anytime. Thank you, guys. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. 
No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.